there's a lot of talk of the paleo diet. According to this diet, it's healthier to eat like our ancestors did. Eat things like meat, fish, fruit, and nuts. Eat like what a hunter-gatherer would eat. But how do we really know what our ancestors ate? Their breakfast plates didn't fossilize. But it's safe to say they didn't stop by a grocery store. So how can we piece together what our ancestors really ate? And how did what they eat affect how they evolved and grew into the human species that we are today? This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, culture, history, and even food. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. The supporters of this podcast will have access to some photos that our guests took on her trips around the world. You'll get a little glimpse into what it's like to be an archaeologist on the road. You can access these through the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. And if you're not a patron and you want to become one, you can join by going to the website sparkdialogue.com or to the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. Hi, my name is Brianna Povener, and I am a paleoanthropologist and educator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History. So let's start with the paleo diet. For those that are really following the paleo diet, the idea is simple. Eat like our ancestors did. Some of this actually is really healthy. Avoid processed foods, sugars, trans fats, artificial sweeteners. I think it's fairly safe to say that our ancestors weren't putting Splenda in their coffee. But what about things like rice and wheat? Chocolate? Butter? What about milk? What about even things like beans or lentils? Did our ancestors really not eat these things? And is it healthy not to eat these things? People have all sorts of opinions. I have so many thoughts about the current paleo diet movement. Um, but, you know, generally when people follow the, the paleo diet trend, they're excluding food from their diet because they don't think our ancestors ate that food and they think our ancestors uh -huh. lived long, healthy lives. Um, so probably none of those things are really accurate. I can't imagine uh, an early human coming upon some kind of food that they could have eaten and going, no, I don't really want to eat that. And there's also good evidence that there were diseases of all sorts um, around in the past. That said, the idea that maybe we should think about a diverse diet, including local foods and eating less processed foods, that I can get behind. So that's probably all I'll say about the paleo diet. But I have some really interesting um, and diverse ideas about it. So what did our ancestors actually eat? How can you even figure this out? Stomachs don't fossilize. So what clues can we use? There's a whole bunch of different methods, actually, we can use to study paleo diets or ancient diets. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's really fun to do this kind of research. You can look at the chemistry of fossil bones and teeth of early humans to get a sense of what kinds of plants potentially early humans were eating. Sometimes those plants, little bits of them actually get stuck on fossil teeth of early humans. So you can look at those. Um, we can look at the foods, leave residue or wear patterns on the tools. But what I do is I look for a direct form of evidence. I look at animal fossils that have butchery marks left by early humans who were using stone tools to process those animals. And so when I find those butchery marks, I know for sure that early humans ate those animals. Near the sea, our ancestors were also eating fish. 
There's some work done at another site called Kubifora in northern Kenya um, that just under 2 million years ago, at about 1.95 million years ago, there's the earliest evidence for eating aquatic animals, butchery marks on fish fossils, on turtles, on crocodiles. Um, and so for large animals, anything that you, you know, can't somehow like, you know, pull off the meat or the shell or something like that and pop into your mouth, anything that needed processing, um, fish included sometimes, um, that's where we can find those evidence, that evidence of butchery marks. This is a great method to understand the meat eating habits of our ancestors. Other animals weren't using tools to butcher their prey. But it does have its limitations. Namely, we can't use this method before our ancestors use tools. Exactly. So um, it's it's harder to get to look for or find evidence of meat eating in particular, which is what I studied before tool use. Um, well, I don't think we currently have good models to be able to recognize chewing damage left by early human teeth. We have some good models to recognize chewing damage left by other predators, but we don't have really powerful, strong teeth and jaws. And so it's not likely that our ancestors left a lot of chewing damage, at least that we currently can recognize. You might think one way around this problem is to look at trash piles. What did our ancestors throw away? Small bones? What kinds of bones? But remember, these people didn't live in just one place. They didn't have a home. They moved around quite a bit. That's what archaeologists do. We look at trash piles and the things that people left behind. Um, but interestingly, it's it's really that archaeological visibility that is the question. Um, so it's not likely that before people really settled down and lived in one place for a long period of time that you're going to get really big accumulations of, you know, anything. Um, but even dating back to some early times of human carnivory or meat eating and, and marrow eating and other kinds of foods from animals, we do see um, accumulations over time in one place of, you know, multiple animals being butchered. The, the hardest, um, I think the time period in which it's hardest to find evidence for butchery is when it was happening occasionally. It was a one-off. It was like one animal over here and another animal over there, and it's not likely to accumulate. Um, so that I think is, even though it's really interesting, is when did this start and when did it become more common? It's harder to find that kind of evidence because it's not a big accumulation that we might find um, in the fossil record. Brianna's work takes her around the world, and she has some really great stories. In fact, being in the field, traveling, and finding things that no one else has seen before is one of her main passions. The main kind of field work that I do for this kind of research is actually digging up fossil sites or archaeological sites. Um, for my dissertation research, I spent many summers in northern Kenya helping to teach on a, um, a field school, teaching undergrads excavation and fossil identification. But we actually excavated fossil assemblages that I studied for my dissertation um, in a place called Kubifora in northern Kenya. We were excavating fossil sites that have animal bones with butchery marks. In fact, a lot of animal bones with butchery marks. The sites were all dated to about a million and a half years ago. And, um, it, you know, every day was exciting for me because every day we had the possibility of uncovering a fossil bone that nobody has seen for the last one and a half million years. That bone's been buried in the ground. It hasn't seen the light of day, but it might have direct evidence of 
meat eating by my ancestors and sort of all of our ancestors. And so like pulling those bones out of the ground myself and having students do that to me was incredibly exciting. I can identify with this. I imagine this is sort of like putting your eye against a telescope. A photon of light travels millions of years from a distant galaxy just to land in your eyeball. You happen to be the person that, you know, made that last brush with a paintbrush or, um, you know, that last scrape with a trowel. And oh my gosh, there is evidence of something that happened a million and a half or two million years ago. It's really exciting. Some of these trips were really awe-inspiring. In an area that's the cradle of our human race, the rising sun over the savannah, and the fossils. One of the places I also worked as a graduate student is a place called Olduvai Gorge in Tanzania. And so this is a pretty well-known prehistoric site. Um, And the fossils that I was excavating there with the team were beautiful. They were very well preserved. Um, And doing research in a place where there is a lot of history in your own discipline, I think is really exciting. Then again, some of her trips were less than wonderful. Um, I did have some other experiences as a graduate student that were a little more challenging. So I did a season's worth of excavation in Indonesia um, at a site on the island of Java. And first, when we arrived, um, there was a volcano erupting near the city that we were staying in. Um, Then we got out to the excavation and... um, On the very last day, there was a massive earthquake about six or seven hours away um, in Jogjakarta, which was the town we were driving back to that we even felt. Um, So as we're driving back, we're seeing all this devastation. We couldn't get into the university to actually deposit our fossils and do the analysis. Um, There, it was supposed to be the end of the monsoon season, but it wasn't. So just about every day, in the middle of the afternoon, we got a torrential downpour that literally filled the site up with water that we then had to drain with buckets and dry out for the next day. It was kind of a very geologically and climatically active field season. Um, and the most disappointing thing, in a sense, is we were hoping to find fossils of animals that had butchery marks on them. But because the excavation was really close to a river, there had been a lot of basically the fossils had sand and other river sediment kind of cemented to the surfaces. So I couldn't even look at them. Um, the surfaces weren't clean enough to be able to see any of those butchery marks. So that was a, uh, it was quite an experience that field season. One thing we can tell for sure about our diets over the course of human and pre-human history, it's changed a lot. Hunting, gathering, farming, milling, and now supermarkets. So one thing I'm curious about, how did the proportions of what we're eating change over time? Did we always eat a mixture of meat, vegetables, and fruit? Were we always, say, omnivorous? Some of that's actually really hard to get at in the past. So we can find evidence for meat eating pretty easily in the form of those butchery marked bones. We have less direct evidence for plant eating. We might be able to find little bits of plants on the edges of stone tools or on the teeth of early humans. Um, But being able to tell those proportions are really difficult. Really the only fossil human species that we have a sense um, of what those proportions were maybe are our close extinct relatives called Neanderthals. So for a long time, Neanderthals had, I think, well-deserved reputations of being very competent hunters. Um, They hunted ice age animals, 
things like woolly mammoths and woolly rhinos and giant deer. Um, and so for a long time, it was thought that basically they ate almost all meat or only meat. But um, subsequent research has shown that they actually did have a, a fairly sizable plant component of their diet um, in certain places. And in other places, they did a lot of fishing and ate seafood um, where they were living close to the coast. Um, and so Neanderthals lived in Europe and Western Asia between about 400,000 and 40,000 years ago. And so the Neanderthals that lived in Southern Spain um, had a decent proportion of seafood in their diet. So one thing that really hasn't changed in a sense is people really eating, you know, what's in their local environments, foraging and eating just about anything they could. I think a big transition came with farming and settling down and really beginning to, in a sense, um, narrow our diet and rely on fewer and fewer types of plants and animals. And so, but that's a much more recent development. I think really most of our prehistory has been um, early people, more recent people eating pretty widely diverse diets as, as much as we could get our hands on them. It makes sense that early humans ate whatever they could get their hands on. But when did they start eating meat? The earliest evidence for meat eating actually right now is fairly disputed. So there's a few fossils from a site called Dakika in Ethiopia that are dated to 3.4 million years ago um, that may have butchery marks on them. So that's sort of the stake in the ground of potentially the oldest um, meat eating. After that, it's not until about 2.6 and 2.5 million years ago that you start to see more sites that have a handful of bones that have butchery marks. So sometime I will usually say sometime between about two and a half and three and a half million years is when we see occasional butchery of animals. So that doesn't necessarily mean that early humans weren't eating some kind of meat before then. If we look to living chimpanzees, which are our closest relatives, uh, primate relatives that are around today, they eat meat from small animals. They're very good hunters of different kinds of monkeys. Um, but it's likely that any kinds of small animals, lizards, birds, things that early humans were eating, that they didn't need tools to process, we won't have archaeological evidence of that. So I think it's likely that there was some low level of meat eating, um, even going all the way back to our split with the lineage that led to chimpanzees somewhere around six or seven million years ago. But there definitely has been some increases after about two and a half million years ago. There's a site called Kanjera South in Western Kenya. Um, I wasn't involved in the excavations there, but I have analyzed some of the fossils from there with a team of researchers. And um, we found that at that site, that's the first time at about two million years ago that you see evidence for early humans going back to the same place over and over again over a span of up to a thousand years to repeatedly butcher animals. So there seems to be a shift at about 2 million years ago where meat eating is no longer opportunistic. It's something that's happening that's becoming more important in our, in our behavioral repertoire. If you're a regular listener of this podcast, you may have made a connection. In a recent episode, I talked with scientists who had similar problems in understanding our human ancestors. They discussed the language pathways in our brains. And like our stomachs, brains don't fossilize. So how can we figure out when our ancestors developed language? To deal with this problem, they looked at modern primates. Namely, they looked at their brains. If they saw a language pathway in a certain primate, it's relatively safe to say that that pathway goes back at least as far as our split with them in the evolutionary tree. So perhaps we could do something similar here, 
look at what other primates eat, and compare that with our evolutionary tree. Great apes have pretty diverse diets, um, but I think looking at chimpanzees and bonobos, who are our closest living relatives, that can be really informative in thinking about what the diets of the earliest humans were like. And so chimpanzee diets are largely plant-based, um, everything from leaves to flowers to fruits to figs. Um, but they also eat small animals, as I mentioned, particularly monkeys, because they're in the trees and they're they're pretty good at hunting mon- monkeys in the trees. Occasionally, terrestrial animals or animals that are on the ground. They eat a lot of honey. They'll eat insects. So um, one thing that is really particularly difficult to get at is the insect component of early human diets, which may have been very important, especially seasonally, but it's much harder to find evidence for that. But there's a difference, at least, that I see here. Take a look at what modern primates are eating. As far as meat goes, most of the times they're eating things like birds, maybe a lizard here and there. But our ancestors? They were eating elephants. That's sort of a size discrepancy, I think. We see, even in the earliest evidence for butchery, that early humans are butchering really big animals. So it's not that they started off with smaller animals and got bigger, it's that even early butchery or things like large antelope, extinct elephants, giraffes, hippos, so big animals. Because probably our ancestors were able to butcher smaller animals or process smaller animals without using tools, we do see that early tool use and evidence for butchery connected with really large animals. Um, And the size of those animals is also an indirect line of evidence that they were probably scavenged. I don't think three and a half or four feet tall early humans without hunting technology or taken down an elephant. Um, So it's very likely that they were, they had died naturally or that predators had gotten there first and that the early humans came in afterwards. Eating large animals is not only tied to tool use, it's also tied to community. One of the biggest factors in our human evolution was the evolution of our social nature. We work together. We communicate. We bring food home to our family and to our tribe. It's hard to see that kind of social behavior in the past. And so it's a good question. You know, one way you might be able to do it is say, is there an increase in like just the overall number of stone tools in each archaeological site as we get later in time? And maybe. Um, But do we have really good enough data to be able to look at that? I'm not sure. Um, But just simply based on looking what modern hunters do and foragers and looking at non-human primates, but also just other predators, um, oftentimes if there are predators that are smaller than the prey that they're hunting, um, they usually work in groups. So it is very likely that that social groups, communication, um, even things like mental mapping, like, okay, where do the lions usually go in order to, you know, hunt their prey? So even scavenging may have required some of that kind of sophisticated capacity and communication and behavior. Certainly thinking about the cooperation that was required to do all of this, I think is important in thinking about how deep that cooperative nature of humanity goes in our evolutionary history. 
I mean, I've been involved in excavating and analyzing the fossils from one of the excavations at a site called the Lorigasile in southern Kenya, which is a Smithsonian research site. I helped direct the excavations there for about six years. I've been studying the fossils there for about another 10 years. After that, you know, um, I have more than 100,000 fossils in my Lorigasile database. There's a lot to look at. But one site in particular called Site 15 is an extinct elephant butchery site. We have the fossil skeleton of an extinct giant kind of elephant, even bigger than African elephants today. We have other animals, evidence that other animals uh, there were also butchered, but we have more than 2,000 stone tools from that site. That wasn't done by one person. For sure, there was a group that was cooperating and communicating in order to be able to make the best use of that kind of food resource. Um, so I think it's really likely that um, the cooperative aspect of scavenging and hunting is something that is like fundamental to that kind of behavior and adaptation. Again, we can go back to our closest living relatives. Do other primates show this kind of cooperative behavior while hunting? If we look at chimpanzees, they almost always cooperatively hunt. And interestingly, um, one, you know, the earliest ideas about why do chimpanzees hunt monkeys? Um, a lot of times they don't do it very well. They don't catch them a lot of the time. They expend a lot of energy. Why bother doing it? Um, and the early ideas all had to do with food. Well, they're hungry. Maybe it's during a season where they don't have their favorite foods around. But it turns out that many observations of chimpanzees noted that, no, it's actually during times of fruit abundance, when there's a lot of fruit around, the you of hunting, and that seems counterintuitive. But it's likely because you have to get a critical mass of individuals together for them to somehow decide, hey, let's go on a hunt and get some monkeys today. Um, and so even in our closest living relatives, it looks like there is a very strong social aspect to hunting. So why eat meat in the first place? Is it just because our early human ancestors were opportunistic? It's an awesome question. Why did early humans eat meat? And, you know, that's one of those that we won't really know without a time machine. Um, so it could be that they watched predators kill other animals, watch predators eat other animals and think, well, that I guess is a source of food. Um, whether it was with changing climates and an increase in grasslands, there were more large animals around. Um, and so it was just kind of a an opportunistic, oh, look, we're seeing more of these things. Maybe they're potentially a source of food, but we don't really know why, honestly. Tied to this is how our ancestors ate meat. Did they hunt for themselves or did they scavenge? This difference may not seem like much, but it actually will affect the quality of the meat, the parts of the carcass they eat, how they use their tools, and ultimately how they evolve. Yeah, understanding the difference between detecting hunting or scavenging in the fossil record is something I'm very interested in and kind of one of my, my research goals. So we can look at where on, you know, a skeleton butchery marks are located to get a sense of whether early humans were hunting or scavenging. So if butchery marks are on the really meaty parts of those animals, like the leg bones, the ribs, the places where the organs would have been, the bones nearby, that might give us a sense that, oh, early humans got there first, because if they had been scavenging from predators, um, all the meat from those areas would be gone and there wouldn't be any butchery marks there. And there might be chewing damage or tooth marks from predators there. On the other hand, if we see evidence for things like butchery marks on only the hands and feet, only other parts of the animals that don't have a lot of meat on it. Also, if early humans are 
taking rocks and bashing open bones to get at the marrow inside. So marrow's great. It has a lot of fat and calories and um, is a good source of nutrition. But maybe if there's a lot of marrow processing, there's not a lot of meat there in the first place. Um, so we can look directly at the fossil bones to get a sense of whether those animals were hunted or scavenged by and then processed by early humans. But also the um, early humans that were around three and a half million years ago up until about two million years ago, um, a species called Australopithecus or a genus called Australopithecus, they didn't get much more than about three and a half feet tall for the females, maybe five feet tall for the males. There's no evidence for hunting technology back until about half a million years ago. So there are tools, but there aren't things like spears that were thrown, spears that were even thrusted. And there certainly evidence isn't any evidence for projectile weapons until much later in time. So the technological evidence also really leans towards um, the idea that a lot of that first meat and marrow access was all through scavenging. So what does all this matter besides refining our definition of the paleo diet? Well, it turns out what we ate and how we ate is very closely linked to how we evolved. And part of this is the development of our brains. So why did our brains grow so large? Did it have to do with food? Well, it's interesting. There's been an idea for a long time or a hypothesis called the expensive tissue hypothesis. So our brains are very energetically expensive. They take up as adults about 2% of our body weight. They use 20% of our energy. As kids, as babies, 65% of babies' energies goes to growing their brains. So not a good deal for an organ, takes up a lot of energy. The next most energetically expensive organ or organ system is our digestive system. Um, and so we do see evidence of a reduction in the size of our guts. And presumably, although our guts don't fossilize and soft tissues and organs don't fossilize, presumably the size of our digestive tracts starting at about maybe 2 million years ago with the evolution of a species called Homo erectus that had a fairly modern human body size and shape. So there has been this idea, this expensive tissue hypothesis says, well, um, the only way for brains to get bigger is to have a release on having to, you know, sort of build other expensive tissues in the body. So if we see evidence for guts getting smaller, that may have released a constraint on brain size. And if, and if there was selection for bigger brains, um, what could have fueled that? Well, maybe it was meat. So meat is high in protein. It's high in fat. It's high in calories. Um, although wild meat is less high in fat, but, um, it's sort of a great package in which to be able to ingest food and not spend like chimpanzees do up to 11 hours a day just digesting our food. Um, no need to do that. Then no need to have a big gut. And this story was like, oh, this is great. This is the hypothesis and an explanation for why, you know, our brains got bigger and what that had to do with meat eating. The problem is that when you actually look at the evidence for the increase in brain size is that we don't see a really big uptick in brain size in our evolutionary history until about a million years ago. So between about six or seven million years ago, the origin of our family tree to about a million years ago, brain size increases at about the same rate as body size. So bodies are getting bigger, brains are getting bigger. And a million years ago, it's like, whoa, brains get a lot bigger. Meat eating had been around for quite a long time by a million years ago, but currently what we see the evidence for it about a million years ago is cooking and the controlled use of fire. So fire is great as far as being able to access 
food that would have been poisonous otherwise, break it down chemically, break it down physically, and make it taste better in a lot of instances. So it could be that it's actually cooking rather than meat eating that led to that big increase in brain size. If our digestive tract and our guts don't fossilize, how can we figure out the evolution of the gut? So ribcage size is how we tell that guts got smaller. So it's really the sh- the size and the shape of the ribcage. So um, in that genus Australopithecus that I mentioned earlier, there's a real kind of like almost triangular shaped ribcage where like the it's um, it goes out at the bottom as opposed to a more barrel shaped ribcage, sort of a straighter shape that we see in our genus, the genus Homo. So yeah, it's really the ribcage and, and some of the pelvis um, uh, that tells us kind of generally the size of the gut. So imagine you're an early human. You don't know that cooking your food will have all of these enormous benefits for your brain and for your descendants millions of years in the future. So why on earth would you take some food and instead of eating it right away, take it back to your family and your friends? And even more bizarrely, why would you choose to hold it over a flame and cook it? In other words, why invent barbecue? First of all, why would you save food at all rather than just eating it when you encounter it? So like humans are weird. We go into a grocery store. We don't open the packages, sit down and eat all the food. We shop, we bring it back, we put it in our pantry and then we cook it for our family. We cook it for our community. Maybe we cook it for strangers. This is a really weird thing for an animal to do. But that site that I mentioned before, Kanjera South, we see evidence for early humans bringing animals to a central place to probably maybe store them for a little bit and butcher them. So that that's likely to be the, the earliest evidence of like transport of food to a central place to, to store it and um, and process it later. Um, you know, why people started cooking is another good question. It, it is very likely that it had to do with just stumbling upon animals that had been burned in natural brush fires and thinking like, oh, well, that tastes good. Or, you know, that is a way to get the skin off of an animal that I can't otherwise, maybe because their skin is too thick with this particular tool. Um so, but again, it's those like, how did that start and why did that happen is, you know, we'll, we'll never know the answers to that. Um, but we do know that by about three or 400,000 years ago, when we see early Neanderthals living in really cold areas, that cooking seems to have been really commonplace. So sometime between a million years ago and a little less than half a million years ago is when people started to cook more and more. Tool use goes hand in hand with our diets. So what were these tools like? Why did our ancestors start using them? And how did tools evolve? So tools go back way farther than Homo sapiens. So we see the earliest tools dating back to about 3.3 million years ago from um, also a site in northern Kenya. Um, and which is right around the same time that we see the earliest evidence for butchery, potentially. Early tools were relatively, they weren't very complex. It was take a rock hit it with another rock, break off a sharp edge. Basically, you're going for a stone knife in order to cut meat off a bone, uh, maybe whittle a stick in order to you know, make it sharp for digging. Um, maybe you're doing other things with some of those wooden tools that, that don't preserve. Eventually, at about 1.7, 1.8 million years ago, there's an innovation in technology. Um, and early humans started making tools called hand axes of the Acheulean technology. 
Um, and those are teardrop shaped tools that are a really efficient way of taking a big piece of rock and getting a lot of those flakes or stone knives off of it. That lasts for about another million years or so. And then you start to slowly get more sophisticated technology and tools that were made for specific purposes. You get things like bone fish hooks, you get hafted tools. So you basically get spear points um, at about half a million years ago. So these are the, the earliest spear points are from a site called Katupan in South Africa. We know that they were spear points. They're triangular shaped, but they also have what are called diagnostic impact fractures. They have breaks on their tips that let us know they were definitely used as spears. So yeah, it's really, it's, it's, there's long periods of, you know what? This technology works well. We're going to keep making it. And then um, at some point, there's a real diversification of making different kinds of tools. Besides meat, what other things did our ancestors eat? Did they drink milk? What about wheat? Is it really legitimate to say that our ancestors didn't eat these things? Yeah, so for things like milk and wheat um, that really require domestication of plants or animals, that goes back usually less than about 10,000 years. Um, so the cool thing actually about the evidence for drinking milk is that we can find it also in a variety of ways. You can look for the evidence of milk fat on ceramic vessels to see if milk was stored there. We can even look at genetics of fossil skeletons of modern humans from about five, six, seven thousand years ago to see if those individuals had the genetic adaptations to be able to digest milk as adults. So it's kind of odd that, you know, maybe about a third of the humans on the planet can digest milk as adults. Um, pretty much all mammals can do that as babies because we nurse our young. But in most mammals and in the majority of humans, actually, the ability to do that basically is turned off by a genetic switch. And so there was some really strong natural selection in several different um, groups of people living in different parts of the world that started to domesticate animals and use milk for food to enable them um, to be able to digest that milk. Milk, again, great source of, first of all, clean liquid in places where when you're keeping animals, you might have a lack of clean liquid. Um, if they're also drinking from the water holes that you're getting your water from, um, good for protein, um, good for fat. And so milk could have been a really important source of food for people that particularly also are moving into new areas and maybe their crops are failing. And the evidence for wheat, interestingly, goes back. I mean, you know, the, the folks that follow a paleo diet and go, well, I'm not going to eat wheat because my ancestors didn't. And I'll say, well, 30,000 years ago, actually, people were eating wheat. So we have evidence for, you know, what we jokingly call paleo pitas, um, sort of baked flat bread um, in archaeological sites dating back to potentially about 30,000 years ago. Um, and even there are little bits of plant fossils that have been found on Neanderthal teeth that are ancestors of modern barley and other kinds of plants that people, we can tell, researchers can tell based on the shape of those little bits of plants that they were cooked. So, and those go back maybe 40, 50, 60,000 years. So we've been eating things like wheat for quite a long time. Eating meat, and in particular, cooking meat, has a lot to do with how we evolved especially how we were able to have as big of brains as we do. Now, I'm not saying let's all go out and eat red meat. Remember, our ancestors also ate a lot of other things too. Berries, nuts, fruit, and even wheat. 
But maybe next time you're standing over your grill and you smell that delicious meat sizzling over the fire, you can thank that ancient hominid that invented barbecue. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember that if you're a patron of this podcast, to check out the bonus content on patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. Thanks for joining us today. I'm taking a break for the month of July, but check back in August for some new episodes. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from Sunbirds by Bow Crew. Drops of H2O, the filtered water treatment by Jay Lang. Recreation by Airtone. And B34 by ZekeWeb. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.